0: Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at the first seven verses of this chapter. Revelation's at the very back, in case you don't know. That's all right if you don't, turn to the very end. Revelation, it's the book about the end of the world, isn't that cool? But we're not going to talk about any of that tonight. We're going to look at what comes first. That's Revelation chapter 2, and I will read the first seven, well, I'm, I'm going to read the first verse of this chapter, and we'll do seven of them total. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Your Bible has an awful lot of letters in it. Have you noticed that? The letters to the Galatians, the Corinthians, the Thessalonians. These are cities and it's written to the church in those cities. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote an epistle word for letter. Jude, Jesus' other brother, also wrote an epistle. Peter wrote two. John wrote three. Paul wrote 13 or 14, depending on who you believe wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. There's a lot of letters in the New Testament, but believe it or not, there's actually seven more letters when you get to the book of Revelation. And it's got seven epistles in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 written by Jesus himself. Isn't that something to think about? Paul wrote this one, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John wrote this one. Jesus wrote these. Now, in in Christian theology, when we talk about inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture, we do not believe, as the Muslims or the Mormons do, that the word came to the writers intact, That there was, whether it's a trance-like experience like Muhammad supposedly had, or whether you found golden plates buried in upstate New York like Joseph Smith supposedly did, we believe that the Lord, as Peter said, carried along the authors of Scripture using their experiences, their personality, their style to inherently communicate his truth. We don't believe in what is called dictation, except for right here. Where Jesus Christ, who we see in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, appears to John and says, write this. So isn't that pretty special? Jesus wrote seven epistles. They're short. He told him what to write. And as you go through these epistles, there's a pattern to each one that you can trace and you can follow. And very often, how a letter deviates from that pattern tells you a lot about what Jesus is trying to communicate but we're going to see it in, in Ephesus. It's kind of a, a classic example of it. And it starts by saying, this is Jesus Christ speaking. These letters could be in red. They might be in red in your Bible. I don't know. But he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus right? Now, real quick, what does that mean? Now you just pause right there. We could do a whole study on just that. To the angel of the church. The Greek word is just angelos, which means messenger, but it also means angel most of the time, like we think of it, a heavenly spirit being. So he's writing this letter to the church, but he addresses it to the angel. What does that mean? Well, very quickly, give you the four most popular options, and then you can fight about it in the car on the way home. Uh, The first one is that this is actually an angel, that there are angels that oversee each individual church, and that as the Lord has given these angels authority to shepherd and guide these churches, he's got a bone to pick with some of them and the things they've been allowing to happen. The Bible talks a little bit about guardian angels, not quite as we tend to think of it, but when Peter, they thought he was dead and he came to the house, they said, ah, it's Peter's angel, it can't be him. So that could be one possibility, although the shortcoming of that is he's talking to the church and he's telling the church what to do. So he's not telling the angel to repent, he's going to tell the church to repent. So there's that. Second is that this is the pastor of the church. And by saying to the angel of the church of of Ephesus, he means the leader of the church, the messenger, the one that speaks for God in that church. That has a lot to, to say for it too. But he doesn't say pastor, does he? He says angel. And he writes with collective pronouns, plural pronouns. He's not just talking to one man. He's talking to all of them. So that's something to consider too. Some people believe that John, who was exiled at this time on the island of Patmos, had received emissaries from all of these seven churches. John was the last living apostle, and he had been exiled by the emperor to live on this island. And so perhaps he had received emissaries, angels, messengers, angeloi, to ask him some questions. And Jesus gave him a word for each of these churches. So quite literally, he's saying, write this to the messenger that came to visit you from Ephesus. I think that's got a lot to say for it. But once again, when John says angel in the book of Revelation, he usually means angel. And we do not have, of course, any evidence beyond that, that there was an emissary that came. So it's kind of sort of an argument from silence, but it's an interesting one. And then the fourth one is that it doesn't really mean anything that specific. It's just an abstraction, right? He's referring to the little s spirit of the church of Ephesus, you know, the the collective body of the church, which then causes us to ask, all right, most of the symbols in Revelation have a specific reference, so why is this one not have one? You can really take your pick on these. They all amount to the same thing, that the letter is intended to be read and acted upon by the church, but it is just kind of cool to imagine why Jesus wrote it this way. We don't always get the answers we want when we're studying the Bible, but we get what we need, and that's the most important thing. letter was written to Ephesus Ephesus was a major city in Asia. It's what was called a free city. And by the way, when I say Asia, this is not the continent of Asia. This was the Roman province of Asia, modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus was one of the big cities there. It was a metropolis. It had as many as 200 or 250,000 people living in it. That's a big city by today's standards. Back then, that was beyond imagination for most people. One of the seven wonders of the world was in in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis. Some of the pillars of that temple still stand today. That tells you how well built it was, where they would go and worship Diana or Artemis, the hunter goddess. And it was a great port city at the time, although by now erosion has so taken place that the city of Ephesus where it used to stand is actually six miles inland. And if you go back and read your history, there were constant public works projects to get all of the silt out of the bay so that they could pre- keep bringing ships in, and eventually they lost that battle. But in the book of Acts chapter 18, we see Paul planting a church in Ephesus. He ministered there for three years. Paul stayed longer in Ephesus than he stayed anywhere else, twice as long as Corinth, which is the second, mu- second longest at 18 months. But he only came there after Priscilla and Aquila had founded the church there. And after Priscilla and Aquila were there, Apollos came through, a man who was called mighty in the scriptures. Then later on, Paul came and he ministered there. And when Paul was preaching in Ephesus, the gospel was so effective, people started burning their magic books and throwing away their idols so that the idol trade began to get hurt in the city of Ephesus. So the Idol Makers Guild, led by a guy named Demetrius, staged a revolt <laughs> They did a riot in the streets. They dragged Christians into the public theater and they said, these men are teaching us not to worship Artemis. Like they cared, their business was being hurt. That's all they cared about. And they sat there chanting for hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul wanted to go in there and preach to him and it said all the other Christians held him back. Like they'll tear you apart, Paul, don't go in there. But the Lord allowed that all to subside and they preached the gospel freely. You can read about that story in Acts chapter 19, if you like. After Paul was there, he sent Timothy to pastor and shepherd that church for a while. The letters to First and Second Timothy were written to him while he was ministering in Ephesus. Church history tells us that after Timothy died, John himself became the pastor of the church in Ephesus after Jerusalem fell. You talk about a who's who of good pastors. Aquila, Apollos, Paul, Timothy, John. And afterwards, church history tells us that men like Polycarp, ministered there, that Ignatius wrote a letter there. This was a, a very important church. Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, and now part of Revelation were all directly written to the Ephesian church. Special place in God's heart, this place. And he says, write to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And then he identifies himself, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. you got to go back to chapter one to get this. John gets a very glorious vision of Jesus with all these different descriptions. And every time Jesus writes a letter to one of these churches, he takes one piece of that description and identifies himself by it. So this time he says, I've got the stars in my hand and I walk in the midst of the lampstands. And it doesn't keep us guessing. In the first chapter, it said the seven stars represent the seven angels of these churches. So whatever the angels are, Jesus has got them in his hand, right? And he's walking in the midst of the golden lampstands, which are the churches. So this is all a picture of Jesus having fellowship and authority over the churches. By holding those angels in his hand, Jesus is expressing, in one sense, security, right? I've got you. But it's less so that. Because the Greek word he uses is krateo. It's another word for hold. And it doesn't mean, gentlemen, like, I'm going to hold my woman tight, never let her go. It's more like, hold your ground. Hold fast. Don't let go. It's, It's a very forceful, I've got you right where I want you. I'm holding on to you. It can be a little intimidating to think of Jesus saying that. Colossians 1.8 says, Christ is the head of the church. And by walking among the lampstands, it's his way of saying, I'm here. I'm in the midst of you. I'm walking in the churches. It's been said a lot of times, Jesus goes to church. The church was Jesus' idea. Don't you love that? The church was man's idea. Jesus just died on the, no, absolutely not. What did he tell Peter? Matthew 16.18, I will build my church. And that's exactly what he's done, isn't it? So this gives us some comfort, right, that Jesus is here with us, but there's also an intimidation factor here. It's like, don't forget who holds you in his hand, the one with the fiery gaze and the feet like burnished bronze. And don't forget that I'm with you and I see all the stuff you're doing, which is about what he's going to get into here. And it's important for us to know that if this letter to the church of Ephesus does not just speak to that church but to every church because in verse 7 he's going to tell us that everybody who has an ear needs to hear what the spirit says to all the churches. So that's who he's writing to and who's who's writing. Read verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The next stage that always comes, right, to the angel of the church or wherever he's writing, a description of himself. Then he says, I know something. Usually I know your works, but he says all sorts of things. I know something about you. And then he'll give them a commendation, he'll tell them what they're doing right. Now, when Jesus says to you, I know your works, That is either incredibly reassuring or horrifying, depending on what your works are. You know, if you come down the stairs and Jesus looks at you and says, I know what you did up there. If you were reading your Bible like, good, somebody saw that. You were doing something you weren't supposed to do. You're going to have to gulp and say, let me go put that back. I know that's not mine depending on what your works have been lately. But Christ has a lot to commend the Ephesians for. And they become an example for us. Let's look at these three real quick. First, your toil, which means work, hard work. The Ephesian church was a hard-working church. They were not lazy in their zeal. Paul said in Romans 12:11, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. They were passionate, hard-working people. Colossians 3:23, do all things heartily as unto the Lord. That means put your heart into it, heartily. They were doing that. Every congregation needs to have a culture of service. And I know that Calvary Chapel Lynchburg has that. That if you're here and this is your church, you got to get to work. Don't just sit there and take it in. Get to work and use your spiritual gifts and edify the rest of us. Toil. They were hard work and they had projects. They had ministries. They had outreaches. They were not lazy. There was a lot going on when you showed up to the church of Ephesus. Number two, their endurance ESV translates that there, patient endurance. And that's really one word, hupomane in Greek. And, and they use two words to kind of get the whole thing out there. It's not just endurance, but it's endurance with patience. You know there's a difference, don't you? You can put up with something and whine about it the whole time. Patient endurance says, it's okay, the Lord is coming, it's going to be okay. For the Lord's name, and this describes endurance specifically of persecution. Emperor Domitian had launched the first emperor or empire-wide persecution against the Christian church. And they had endured that. Every church must be prepared to suffer. Y'all, if you wanna be a Christian, you better be prepared to suffer. Death, imprisonment, rebuke, reviling, beating, ostracization, loneliness. If you're not ready for that, you ain't ready. We, f- we follow somebody who was crucified. So that's kind of the deal. Jesus said, You're not better than your master. And if they called me a son of the devil, just imagine what they're gonna call you. 2 Timothy 3:12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's why the apostles rejoice. Hey, we must be desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus because we're being persecuted. The world is writing nasty things about us and posting them online. We must be worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. That's awesome. Number three, they're testing. They refused to put up with false teachers. They tested all things. Don't let anybody tell you doctrine doesn't matter. It matters to the New Testament. Make a big deal out of that. 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the spirit, but test all things and hold fast to what is good. 1 John 4, 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And the Ephesian church was doing that. Especially, he's going to say, the Nicolaitans who the short version is, we really don't know who they were, but Jesus hated them and hated their works. So best not be a Nicolaitan. Some of the churches he'll address were allowing the Nicolaitans to get into the church. The Ephesians were not doing that. is of paramount importance, like the Bereans in Acts 17, check everything against the word. Not against your textbooks, not against your favorite podcast, not against your own opinions or your roommate who likes to talk. Test it against the word. Paul preached to the Bereans, and they went home and double-checked him, and he said, you are noble for doing that. Noble, pretty cool word. You want to be noble? Double-check every Bible study with the Bible. I mean, you look at this description, enduring, suffering, working hard, rooting out false doctrine. Church, Can I tell you something you already know? Churches are not to be houses of entertainment. I'm not rebuking y'all because it doesn't happen here, I know. But this is not just a show. This is not a place for you to come be around people, you know, get a little sunlight once in a while, hear some live music and a live podcast, some free coffee, and go home. That is not what this is. (laughs) And that's not what we're aiming it to be. It's not what Pastor Troy is aiming for it to be. We are an ancient order of people who know the truth about God, safeguarding the greatest truth of all time through the word of mouth, one by one discipleship that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's much better, isn't it? Wouldn't you rather be part of that? Wouldn't you rather be part of that thing than, oh, I wish the coffee was better. I'll go over here. All of this demonstrates to us that Ephesus was a fine church, doing well in many, many important ways. And if you were to look at a church like that, you'd sit there and clap your hands. Look at them. They endured persecution. They rooted out false teachers. Takes guts to do that. They got so much going on. Praise God. Well, guess what? as important as all those things were, they're not enough for Jesus. With all that I just said, Jesus says it's not enough. Keep reading. Verse four. But I have this against you. I know your works. Here's what you're doing well. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I prefer the more literal, old-fashioned translation. You have left Your first love. The next common step in these letters is he would say, I have this against you. There's always a but. There were a couple churches that were doing good and didn't get a rebuke. But the rebuke is the next thing. The correction from Christ. And the ESV there gives us a dynamic translation, which is helpful. But literally, you left your first love. You know what love is? It's that word agape. It's that unconditional personal affection. So what is he talking about here? Three quick options. Number one, this is just general in love. They, they were not loving people. They didn't have the character trait of love. Okay, but first love, that doesn't really fit there, does it? Because you don't start out as a believer with a characteristic of love. That gets built in you later, does it not? Okay, so it's probably not that one. Second one is your love for one another. You're serving and you're rooting out false doctrine, but you don't love each other. Well, that's important too, but is that the first love, the most important love? Is that the love that brought us to the church? It was not. The third option, and the right option, is that this is their love for Christ. Jesus Christ is our first love, both in order and importance. The first thing that made you a Christian was your love for Christ Jesus, and indeed the love of Christ Jesus for you. It's also the first in order of importance. When Jesus was asked by the religious leaders, what's the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. You know, even the Pharisees didn't argue with him on that one. (laughs) Well, as much as I hate agreeing with Jesus, I mean, I don't know what I'm supposed to say to that. Yeah, you love God first with everything you've got. Therefore, because Jesus said it is the most important thing in life, and because it was the very thing that brought you to salvation in the first place, the love of God and thereby the love of Christ is to characterize the Christian more than anything else. The number one identifier of a Christian is love for Jesus. And don't get cute with that word love either. They had works. He's not talking about works, they had right doctrine. He's not talking about right doctrine. This is personal affection for the person of Jesus Christ. You know what this word means. Consider John's perspective. John was the last living apostle. The rest of them had been killed. If you read church history at this time, it's so fascinating because they talk about what are we going to do when we lose the living voice? What do they mean by that? When everybody who knew Jesus personally is dead, what are we going to do? And they say, we have the scriptures and those are great. And yeah, they are. But they said, but we're going to miss asking John, like, hey, I was reading in Matthew, like, what happened there? And John could tell you. And, oh, yeah, and then Philip didn't like that one very much. And, you know, I actually wasn't there for that. I was out there, you know, picking figs for dinner that night. You know, all of those personal things. Like, What, what, what did Jesus' laugh sound like? The living voice. John himself wrote, I could tell stories to Philip every book in the world. They were seeking him out. They were, he was the last link to Jesus Christ, the last living link. But before he had become any of that, before he wrote scripture, before he evangelized the world, before he took care of Mary until her death, before any of that, he had a love for Jesus. He had a personal connection and affection for the person of Jesus. Love for His Lord. You remember, I mean, not to use another example now, Mary Magdalene in the garden. When the tomb was empty and she's weeping, and Jesus, who she thought was the gardener, says, why are you weeping? She says, they've taken away my Lord. Not the Christ that we've been waiting for. My Lord. Personal love, personal affection. Y'all, if Ephesus was a hardworking church. It refused to buckle under persecution. It had sound doctrine, and that was not enough in Jesus' eyes. It was not enough. Sound doctrine, hard work, faithful under persecution, because they lacked love for Jesus. And I am so sad to say, as we must, that a lack of that childlike love for Jesus is endemic to the American church. Just that little kid, daddy's home love for God. You know, you get older. And you say, do you love your dad? Yeah. And you say, why? And you've you got a good story. Let me tell you what my dad did for me. When you're a kid, you ain't got any stories like that. Why do you love him? Because he's my daddy. I love my daddy. But that's what's, what's plaguing us here. Especially, here's the hard part, the mature brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a lack of love for Jesus. Why is that? Here's one reason I think why. Although this has been a problem since the early church, here's the temptation as it's coming at us. In the public sphere, the discussion of religion and Christianity and all of that has come back into the forefront. And we have begun to take our cues of how we think about Jesus from people who are not Christians. Because what, what's happening now? We're seeing the culture just degrade. Like, forget like spiritually. Just the culture is just changing and like running down the river. And everybody's trying to build the sandcastle back up. So, what do, they, well, what do we have last? Oh, churches. Okay, let's we'll put churches here. And uh, the Bible, let's get the Bible up here and hold up the wall. And we get excited. <gasps> they're talking about Jesus. Jordan Peterson's reading the Bible. Ben Shapiro interviewed a Christian. Oh, they invited a pastor to come speak at that political convention. <gasps> Well, how kind of them? Okay, that's great, but why does that excite us more than the fact that we know Jesus Christ himself? And here's the problem. Why is that a problem? Because they're not viewing Jesus as the person who will save your soul and mine and return to judge the living and the dead. They're viewing him as a cultural artifact that we removed and we've got to put back to save the culture. This is why they'll talk about the Bible. They won't talk about the God of the Bible. They'll talk about God as an abstraction, not as a person. They'll talk about God. They won't talk about the Trinity. They'll talk about Christ. They won't talk about Jesus. They'll talk about the New Testament. They won't talk about the resurrection. And they'll even say those things don't matter. And we know they matter, but we get so excited that they're talking about Jesus. We want to engage at that level, and it slowly saps our love away. And we start to engage with the person and story of Jesus like somebody who doesn't even know him. And we start to care more about our labor and our doctrine than the love of Jesus himself. How does this look? I'm going to give you five ways that you can tell this is happening. First is is the person who despises popular piety. What do I mean by that? Person who's left his first love is somebody that always has something critical to say about the way someone else is worshiping Jesus. Rather than getting excited about the fact that they're praising Jesus, they're gonna nitpick the songs they're singing. Rather than say, "Whoa, people are praying," they say, "Well, it doesn't look like they really mean it." You know, back in the 1500s, that was real worship. And don't you completely miss what's happening now because you're so worried about getting it right, missing the fact that, hey, they're, they're worshiping the Lord. Number two, the kind of person who avoids worship in order to do service or uses service as a cloak to prevent them from actually coming and worshiping. This can happen publicly. People that would rather march in the streets to get the prayer back in school than actually show up to their church's prayer meeting. Or it can be the guy that serves as an usher so that he doesn't have to sit in the sanctuary the whole time. Well, yeah, I'm there and I believe, but I just don't, I just don't think I can sit through that again. I'm very concerned about the church. and make sure everything that has gone right, and I hope they're listening to him in there, but there's no personal love and affection for those things. About the one who obsesses over doctrine but lacks kindness. The person that can tell you everything there is to know about salvation and yet has no love himself. The person that when somebody gets it wrong online, does not come in and, like Priscilla and Aquila, take him aside kindly and show him more properly. They come out with their fangs and claws and, you, Heretic. Lack of love for Jesus. There's no desire to introduce somebody to the person that changed your life and you love more than anybody else. You just wanna make sure that they're towing the line. And that's a good thing to do, but if you lack love, you're gonna lack love to each other. How about the one who will evangelize something else more than his faith? He'll talk more about your hobby than you will about Jesus. Talk more about politics than you will about Jesus. Talk more about sports than you will about Jesus. Here's somebody, you know, I live in Alabama, You know, somebody's over here and they might hear a war eagle come from over there and Mr. Roll Tide straightens his hat and turns around, I got something to say to you, son. (laughs) Or you hear somebody say something against your favorite political candidate and you're up out of that chair, you got something to say. I can't let this stand. Why don't you talk about Jesus? Well, you know, we got to let people see that we believe more than actually telling them. How about number five, the one who rushes through their devotion so that they can be entertained again. Person that says, Come on, how long? I got to read three chapters a day. How long? Oh, goodness gracious. What are you rushing for? Well, I only got four episodes left. You can sit through a three hour movie, but a 45 minute Bible study just causes our mind to wander. Luke 10, 41 through 42. Remember Martha and Mary? Classic example, right? She's cooking dinner. Mary keeps sneaking off to go listen to Jesus. Martha shows up and gives Jesus the business. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, twice. Why? Because I think he's trying to get her. Martha, 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 what? (laughs) (laughs) You are anxious and troubled about many things. Maybe you're here and you're anxious and you're troubled. He tells her one thing is necessary. You want to know the key? Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Jesus said, I am not about to send her away from sitting at my feet, even to go do something as important as cooking dinner. Love of Jesus first. Where is the love for Christ? In your house, where is the love for Christ? Don't you know that Jesus would rather use a flawed vessel with love than a dead orthodoxy? He'd rather use people that are all kinds of messed up, but man, they love Jesus. That's why Jesus picked the disciples he did. Lord, let's barbecue those Samaritans. You know who said that, don't you? The guy who wrote this down and his big brother, the Sons of Thunder. How about Peter? Peter, who always thought he knew what was right. Jesus put him in charge. He picked those guys. Why? Because, like, man, they love me, and they're moving, and I can work with that. We'll straighten out the rest later. And listen, Calvary Chapel, Lynchburg, y'all, you are an Orthodox church. You are a hardworking church. And I believe you would hold up under persecution, and I commend you for that, and so does the Lord. You're excited and motivated about this ministry, but you must ask yourself the question, is there real love for the person of Jesus in your heart? If all of this was taken away, and it was just you and the Lord, would you still continue? Does it matter what kind of things you have as long as Jesus is there? I hope there is, but you must take inventory of your own life. Verses 5 and 6, what does he tell them to do? Remember, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He tells them to do two things, remember and repent. Look back and turn back. Do the first work. That is, come back to your first love. Just as every marriage takes work after a while to maintain that first love, does it not? You've got to take the time. You've got to invest in one another because we want to maintain this, but it's not going to last on its own forever. Problem is, many of us would look at Ephesus and say, well, that's it. That's what we got to do right there. It's an exemplary church, but Jesus can only see how far they've fallen. So I know there's more stuff than ever before. I know that you've finally got those false teachers out. And I know that the persecution is over and you're all still here and you got the scars to prove it, but don't you remember what it was like before all of that when you first heard the word and you just couldn't get enough of it and you were drinking in my scriptures and you couldn't pray long enough and you showed up late to work because you were evangelizing to somebody and almost lost your job? Don't you remember that? This is what happens with every move of God in a person's life or in the world. I mean, look at, for, pick on one group, the Methodists. Who began that? John Wesley and George Whitefield. Born again preachers, man. A love for Jesus and look from where they've fallen. Are there good Methodist churches? Yes, but most of the good ones are leaving. Because they're like, this is not our first love. This is not where we started. This isn't what we signed up for. We should pray for those men. And you might be saying, okay, look, yeah, I know that love for Jesus is important, but don't you think in 2023, we always quote the year like it means something, you know? Don't you think that standing firm on doctrine is more important? No. Love for Jesus is more important. Shane, doctrine's not, didn't say that. I said more important. Don't you think working hard and actually doing something is more important than sitting around? Nope. Loving Jesus is first, always first, Because what does Jesus say? You've got all that other stuff, but if you don't get this right, I'm gonna remove your lampstand. The lampstand represents the church. If you don't get this right, you ain't gonna be a church no more. I'm gonna take that lampstand, blow the light out, and put it in the closet. And then there will be six churches in Asia. That's how seriously Jesus takes it. I'll withdraw my blessing, I'll withdraw my sustaining power, and your church will shrivel up and die if you do not repent. What did he said earlier in in chapter 15 of the Gospel of John? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides, what does abide mean, guys? Stay or remain or keep going. That's what abide means. Who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Those who do not continue in their first love will be cast into the fire, says the Lord. We might say, well, what about this passage? What about that passage? Y'all, what about this passage? It's, a, it's supposed to put a shudder down your spine because he holds us in his hand, remember. And those of you that are getting excited, yes, all right, get him, Tyler. Okay, but what about you? Don't sit there and go, you know who really needs to hear this? You know who I'm going to share this with after this service? You're the one that God brought here to hear this. So examine yourself first. If all you can ever think is the church is too sloppy, it's too lax, it's too missing this, it's too that, are you concerned for the honor of Christ Jesus or that church is no longer happening the way you're used to it? Those are not the same thing. It doesn't matter, according to Revelation 2, your doctrine, your endurance, or your ministry if you are not first a lover of Jesus Christ a personal affection for him, the one who came down. Well, I'm working on it. I'm struggling with it. Y'all, it's the first thing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our message to the world. People ask me a lot, what, are we, what should we be saying to the millennials of the day? What should we be saying to the next generation? The same thing we said in the last one, Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're not just preaching morality, the commandments of Christ are a response of love towards Christ. We're not just preaching miracles, as great as those are. Miracles are a demonstration of the love of Christ for another person, it's always primary. The first block is the love for the person of Jesus. So what do we do? Return and do the first things, and this is the good news. You can do the first things. What characterized your early love for Jesus? Go do that. Can we just stop waiting for the mood to strike on stuff? Well, I came to church, and they played three songs, and I just didn't, didn't feel it. I was really hoping to worship today, but I just didn't feel it. I came to prayer, and I wanted to pray, but I, I don't know, I just couldn't get there. What get there? Do it. I don't want to be a hypocrite. You're not a hypocrite. You believe it, don't you? Then just do it. I just did a mission trip to Uganda. It was so much fun. What I loved about the congregations there is they did not wait to start worshiping. The music began and they started with, hallelujah, praise the Lord, yes, and they just began. Kind of like when David said, soul, bless the Lord. You get in line, soul. I don't know what's up with you today, but we're blessing the Lord today. We're praying today. We're worshiping it. We're sharing the gospel today. We're opening that living book and reading it today. Go and do the first things. What do you think God would do in your life if revival came to this country? Just think, what would God do to your life? You probably have a few obvious ones. Why not just go do those things? Oh, Tyler, you, I wish you could have seen the Jesus movement. Hey, me too. Why not just go do those things? We had all night prayer meetings. All right. Go for it. We will just go to the street and just share Jesus with everybody. Well, go do the former things. Jesus is like, I remember that too. You want to do some more? Come back and do the former things. It's not that the commendations that they were given were wrong. It's not that sound doctrine is wrong. Quite to the contrary. But they missed the sitting at the feet part that Mary got right. Right? Where is the delight in the person of Christ? This is what we miss. And when all these public people are talking about Jesus, there's no love for him. There's no delight in him. There's no tear that comes to the eye when you think of what Jesus did for you. Like David, when he sat in the field as a young child, no hope of ever becoming a warrior or a king or a prophet. He just sat there with his harp, looking at them sheep and said, you know what? The Lord is my shepherd and I don't need anything. And the Lord goes, this guy, make him king. Let him kill some giants. The winnowing fork is the Lord is in his hand. Have you not noticed that the Lord has been threshing and sifting our nation? And the next thing that comes when you're threshing wheat is the winnowing. You throw it in the air so that the wind of the Spirit can blow and see if anything remains. Yes, we've got to hate the Nicolaitans, but we've got to love Christ more than we hate anything else. Yeah, we're opposed to this doctrine. We're opposed to this woke thing. And we're opposed to this group over here. We've got to love Jesus more than all of that. Today, you must leave behind the things that you have accumulated since you began walking with Jesus. All the weights, all the extra stuff. Worship team, would y'all come on up, please, as we read Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. you got two cup holders on the side of your head. This one's for you. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This final portion of the letters is always the blessing to the one who overcomes and a call to hear. The tree of life, which of course that was the tree in the Garden of Eden that they didn't get to eat. That gave eternal life to whoever ate it. Everybody who repents and comes back and does the former things will have eternal life with Jesus forever. To conquer, he says, to endure to the end, lovelessness will cause you to fail in that journey. That's what the Spirit says to Calvary Chapel this evening. Love for Jesus, the person of Jesus. He's like, don't miss me in the midst of all this stuff. You know, I very often in ministry, especially when I was doing youth group, and I have people come and say, you got to talk to my son. I know if he talks to you, it'll be okay. I know you'll know just what to say. I can't help anybody. All I can do is introduce them to Jesus. Not as a magician who will solve all your problems. Not as a talisman, as like a good luck charm. Keep him around, things will go better for you. Tilt the scales of luck in your favor. Not as a philosophy, Lord help us. But as the living God made flesh who died for you and loves you with an everlasting love. I, I, we've got to just reject the way the world is framing this halfway Jesus. It's like, no, 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 you're missing it, guys. We don't just venerate the word, we worship the word made flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of the Father. And lest you think that this is baby st- Christian stuff, and I'm too mature, I close with this. Philippians 3, verse 7 and 8. Paul said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of What? What, Paul, tell me, what is worth giving up everything for? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's time to return to your first love, Christian, lest your lampstand be removed. But the good news is that Christ is here, he walks in the midst of the lampstands. Fear him. Remember, he's got you, right? But fall at his feet, and he'll draw you close to yourself. This generation does not need any more activists or theologians. It needs lovers of the person of Jesus Christ. Leave your net, leave your water pot, pick up your bed, and walk, and follow Jesus, just Jesus, forever. Amen? Lord God, I pray... Just turn us back to you, Jesus. You know, you, even in the letter, we can hear how serious a matter this is. But even so, you're like, but just come on. I don't want to do this. Just come back. Or there's people here that need to return to their first love. Because then all the other stuff comes alive, Jesus. But we can't lose you. I pray for this this place, God. You would pour out a love for the person of your Son. Holy Spirit, that is your job. You testify of the Son. Stir Him up in our hearts. Some of you need need to repent. You must repent. That means to turn around and to change your mind. It's not really that complicated. It means you're going to stop doing what you're doing and come back and do the old things. So I don't know if that's you. There's somebody the Lord sovereignly ordained that this is the message that we preached here tonight. And some of y'all, you need to come meet Jesus for the first time. Some of you are going to find out what life is all about tonight. And you're sitting there and like, you know, I've always had problems with the church, but I like Jesus. Great. Come meet him. We'll introduce you to him. He'll change your life. And for those of you that you just know what it should be. You just kind of lost your way. Just come back. Come back to the narrow road. And allow that, that holy detachment that God gives you from the way the rest of the world is doing it sink in a little bit to where it's just Jesus. Yeah, we want to fix the nation. We want to fix the country. We want to, all that, guys. But the only way we're going to do that is if we come back to Jesus. Us first. That's revival. So as the worship team plays, I'm going to be up here. I don't know if there's, we have folks that will be coming up to pray with you also, but if you want to just come and I want to come back to Jesus. I want to love Jesus first. Let me pray for you. If you've got a need, if you've got a burden, come let Jesus lift that burden off of you. And then all of your works and your endurance and your patience and your dealing with false teachers, then all of that will mean something. Praise God.